Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics and Dean of the Faculty at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here today at the, at the meetings of the Evangelical Theological Society, where we get a chance to talk, to gather all of the sort of big hitters in terms of uh, theology and philosophy and biblical studies uh, from our evangelical movement. And I'm so grateful that our guest today, Dr. Frank Beckwith, is not only here at ETS, but has agreed to take time out of his schedule to uh, take time for the podcast today. Frank, thank you so much for being with us on this. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Scott. Thank you. Frank is professor of philosophy and church-state relations at Baylor University. He's been there for over it's a like decade my now, 16th right? year. 16th year. Yeah. Um, and he has, I mean, he has more books and journal articles than we know what to do with. It would take most of our time here to outline those. But what I, what I do want to point out is that Frank has had the chance to publish in a lot of different venues that the average Christian philosopher doesn't get to do. Uh, lots of law journal publications, uh, lots of uh, pu- public affairs and public policy types of journals. His specialty really is in the area of the intersection of law, politics, and religious faith. And so that's what his, his latest book is about, which I want to talk about today. It's, a, it's called Taking Rights, R-I-T-E-S, yeah. Seriously, uh, Law, Politics, and the Reasonableness of faith. So first of all, tell me what you mean by the, that title, yeah. taking rights, R-I-T-E-S, uh, seriously. Well, there's a, there's a little history behind it. Uh, there was a book published in the early 1970s by Ronald Dworkin called Taking Rights Seriously, R-I-G-H-T-S. And when I was thinking about the name of the book, uh, I came across an article by Paul Whiteman at um, University of Notre Dame who published uh, in the Pacific Philosophical Quarterly an article entitled Taking Right Seriously, R-I-T-E-S, and it was a critique of Dworkin and Rawls. And so I decided to take that title. I give him full credit in the acknowledgments. And under copyright law, you don't need actually to get permission to take titles. But uh, it captures, I think, um, what I'm trying to achieve in the book. I'm trying to uh, do several things, one of which is to kind of correct uh, judges and legal scholars and how they understand religion and also deal with some of these recent issues involving conflicts between anti-discrimination law and the rights of of uh, Christian vendors not to participate, let's say, in same-sex wedding ceremonies. So like Jack Phillips. That's exactly in the masterpiece cake shop case. So so those kind of so so the words the word rights obviously refers to sort of practices or activities that religious citizens engage in. We think of things like baptisms and weddings and so forth. But it's also, I also broadly am referring to just beliefs that that uh, Christians and other religious citizens hold that are tightly tethered to their theological traditions. So that's the kind of, kind of origin behind the title. So when anyone Googles Dworkin's book, mine will pop up. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's that's a really nice thing to have that yeah. critique pop up right right away. Yeah. So if you look through the table of contents of the book, it covers a wide variety of subjects relating from abortion to same-sex marriage uh, and a whole host of things in between that. Yeah. It looks on the surface to be a pretty eclectic collection of essays, yeah. but I know there's a theme that unifies yeah. all of these things. So tell our listeners a little bit, what's the, what's the underlying 
sort of big idea that you're trying to get across in this? Yeah, the, the book is divided into to three parts. The first ha has to do with sort of issues in faith and reason. The second part has to do with issues of human dignity and uh, the beginning of human life. And the final part has to do with issues of of nature. So, uh, so the, the last part deals with issues concerning uh, debates about intelligent design as well as same-sex marriage. You think, well, what do they have to do with each other? I actually do think they have to do with these deeper questions about nature. And of course, the one has to do with the origin of nature. The other has to do with whether, in fact, we can derive from human nature particular uh, ways in which we should conduct our lives concerning marriage and, and issues like that. So the underlying theme is basically how uh, how best to understand religious beliefs that happen to at times run, in, run into or, or co conflict with kind of prevailing cultural trends. And so there's really no one right answer because religious beliefs are, dif are different. So if I'm talking about, let's say, abortion, uh, I can make an argument that I think appeals to premises that maybe somebody who doesn't share my faith may find plausible. But if I'm making an argument as to why a wedding vendor shouldn't should be permitted to let's say not cooperate in a same-sex wedding there I have to actually get into the weeds theologically like what is a wedding for Christians which is a different question than let's say in abortion so the underlying theme is like how to best understand these disagreements and also to offer correction because uh, one of the things that is astonishing to me that I entered law 11 years after I did my PhD. And so when I went to law school and I would read these cases and I would read legal scholars that are dealing with religion, I would think, they don't understand it. <laughs> they don't, they have a kind of almost bad Sunday school way of looking at religion. Now there are some sophisticated scholars out there. I don't mean to broad brush here. I think, for example, of Kent Greenewalt at Columbia, Mike McConnell at Stanford. There are people that do really know uh, religion. Um, uh, but generally, you get these kind of superficial accounts, and uh, the book is a kind of an attempt to sort of offer correction. So what would you say are some of the, the, the main things yeah. that judges and courts and legislators yeah. misunderstand about religious yeah. beliefs? I think one is the way in which they, they try to understand the epistemic status of religious beliefs. So, for example, Brian Leiter. Okay, is, for, for our listeners. Oh, epistemic. Yeah, it's how, how, we come, how we come to know things. Okay. And so that is, when, when I say, for example, I believe God exists, um, how do I know that? I mean, I can sort of figure out, if you ask me, well, where is Iowa? I can point on a map. If I say, how do I know God exists? I mean, there's different ways to answer that. You can say, I have an argument for God's existence, or I have encountered God in my personal life. These are different re ways in which people can claim to know God. So Brian Leiter, in his, his recent book, Why Tolerate Religion, now Leiter is a philosopher and a lawyer who teaches at the University of Chicago Law School. He says what makes religion different from other ways of or other practices and beliefs is that religion uh, involves categorical demands that are insulated from the evidence. And what he means by insulated from the evidence is the evidence that we usually find in the sciences and in common sense. And I think Leiter is completely wrong. Uh, not in, no, I shouldn't say completely wrong. He's, he's, he's partially wrong in, in this sense. So one of the things he says is that religious beliefs 
can, are never adjusted in light of the evidence. And I think that is just historically inaccurate. So if you look at, for example, the way in which, let's say, Christians interacted with early pagan culture when the church arises, what happens is they're confronted with the Stoics and the Platonists and others, and what they try to do is they try to appropriate as much as possible from those philosophical traditions in order to be able to articulate their faith. Uh, you find within my own background, Catholicism, the Catholic Church changes its views on religious liberty, right, in light of kind of a different set of historical realities, right? So there's, you, you find, I think, one of the things that's amazing about the history of theology is that at least within Christian theology, Christians having to confront certain challenges, either internally or externally, will sometimes not clearly not abandon their beliefs, but they'll find a better way to explain them or to understand them. And so in many ways, the Christian theological tradition is not unlike other sorts of traditions, uh, intellectual traditions, or what are called doxastic practices, right, uh, in the sciences or just ordinary sense perception, Right, so uh, I think that people like like Leiter have not clearly investigated with any sort of rigor what, how Christians, at least, or even people outside of Christianity, have tried to balance faith and reason. Yeah, it seems to me that that at, at the level of popular culture, we've redefined faith as something That's that right. actually either goes against the evidence or is insulated from evidence. That's right. The idea that faith could actually be something that is consonant with evidence. That's I think right. it's foreign to, to most of my neighbors. That's right. Because uh, they, they would say faith, you know, religious faith takes over when, when reason stops. That's right. Or is no longer able to function. That's right. And so, so even um, someone like, um, like uh, Thomas Aquinas talks about faith, he actually doesn't believe, he believes that faith and reason are consistent, but ultimately the move to faith is really the result of God's grace. And so, in a way, when we say that we have, we don't want to say, this is some of the things I'm not, I, I, I don't talk about enough in the book, but when, when, a, when somebody could have very well an argument for God's existence and not have faith in God. It's not the same thing, and right? And so this is why people like Aquinas are really careful to say that an argument can't actually give you faith. That's the movement of God's grace. But in fact, Arguments can put you in a position to be more open to that grace, right? So, but these sorts of issues that Christians have wrestled with are just not found in this literature, uh, in the legal uh, profession, and it, it is kind of astonishing. So, when it, when it comes to pub matters of public policy, yeah. uh, I think it's fair to say that there's been a long history of skepticism about re religious believers trying to impact public policy for religious reasons and yeah. for religious motives. Yeah. Uh, and there's, mm -hmm. there's pretty significant skepticism about religious people being involved yeah. in public policy unless you're willing to sort of check all of your religious beliefs at the door yeah. and act like essentially a practical atheist yeah. when coming into these discussions. Be because it seems to me we've misunderstood the notion of the separation of church and state. That's right. So how... How can a religious person be involved in the public arena and yeah. not violate the separation of church and state at the same yeah. time? 
I think it was your, your professor, uh, Dallas Willard, who once said that, the, that what's happened in the West is that the separation of church and state has morphed into the separation of faith and reason. I think it's, I forget what, uh, which one of his books, but I remember that sort of stood out, that claim. And I think, I think Willard is absolutely correct. Uh, so today when somebody says, uh, oh, that's just a religious argument, what they're really saying is, that's nonsense. Right. So uh, I... And, and, and therefore, it doesn't count. For, That's exactly for right. So, 15 wow. years ago, I was at the University, uh, oh, Texas Tech University Law School, and I had off. I was there to talk about some of these issues. And one of the, there was a professor in the audience that was uh, uh, held his appointment in one of the science departments. He raised his hand and he said, "All you've given us are religious arguments." And I said, "Wow, I'm relieved. I thought you were going to say they were bad arguments." <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, he sort of was taken aback. And I, then I turned to the audience. I said, see what's going on here. He's decided to put an adjective in front of my arguments and call them religious. That doesn't have anything to do with it. They're plausible, right? I mean, either the premises are true or more likely true than not, or the premises support the conclusion. That's how we evaluate arguments. We don't simply dismiss them because the speaker happens to be motivated by their religious tradition, or even if they have religious premises, Right? I mean, there's, why, why should we believe that that necessarily makes it a bad argument? Now, uh, it turns out, I think, when it comes to this issue of how to enter the public square and without violating the separation of church and state, it's, al it's almost impossible to come up with a, a theory in the, in the wholesale. You have to kind of deal with it in the retail. And what I mean by that is you actually have to go over the issues. So something like an issue like abortion, uh, Obviously, a vast majority of pro-lifers are either serious Christians or serious Jews, or there are a few non-believers who are very committed to the pro-life cause. Uh, there, a lot of us are motivated by our Christian faith, but we also realize that there are arguments we can present that don't rely on our theological uh, beliefs. Other issues are a little bit more difficult, So, uh, but in a different way. So going to the example of the, the wedding vendor, um, why should uh, uh, he or she be carve, have an exemption for ordinary anti-discrimination law? And there, I think, theology is actually quite helpful. We can make a distinction between discrimination against the person, that is to say, supposing uh, the, the wedding vendor says, I will never uh, sell a donut to a, a gay person. Uh, and supposing it's a community in which... Uh, there are um, um, anti-discrimination laws that forbid any sort of discrimination uh, based on sexual orientation. I, I think even a Christian would say that, no, people have a, you know, having nutrition and eating and drinking are sort of basic human goods, and, and you shouldn't deny that to somebody, even if they live a life that you may believe is sinful. On the other hand, though, what is being asked for by the same-sex couple or somebody, you know, asking on their behalf is for the person to design a particular type of cake or item to celebrate an event that they believe is inconsistent with their religious tradition. And so it would be like, let's say, a Jew for Jesus pastor going to a Jewish photographer and saying, could you come and photograph our baptisms? <laughs> and we're going to put them on our website and we're going to give you credit. And he says, 
No, because the people that you're baptizing are coming out of my faith, and I consider this apostasy, and I don't want to cooperate with it. So I think there you, you sort of are, there were, that's where theology is really helpful because you're actually instructing people, no, baptisms for us, or, or weddings are more like baptisms and bar mitzvahs than they are like barbecues and baby showers. And so I think you have to kind of deal with it, as I said, in the retail, not in the wholesale. It's going to come down to different issues and having to explain it in ways that people that may not share our beliefs can understand. Yeah, that, I think that's a really helpful analogy to make uh, that, that I think brings it further down at the retail level, like you're suggesting. I don't think it's widely known, uh, but there's a news piece that came out shortly after uh, the Jack Phillips case yeah. was decided by the court of a coffee shop in Seattle. Yeah. Um, that had was was owned by a, an atheist, very outspoken atheist, yeah. and there were Christians who were um, pan, passing out flyers yeah. for their services on the streets, and they came into the coffee shop to get a cup of coffee, yeah. and the owner saw you know saw what they were doing, became enraged yeah. at, at what they stood for, and actually threw them out of his coffee shop. Yeah. And there no you know yeah. no violation of anti-discrimination laws yeah. supposedly yeah uh, and no consequences and very little news coverage yeah and that, that. that's actually a pretty clear case of of removing someone because of their beliefs which is a violation uh, of, I think I don't think there's any jurisdiction in the United States that doesn't have anti-discrimination laws that that concern religion on the other hand though imagine the Christian group said to the uh, hired the coffee shop guy to cater an event where they were going to, uh, let's say, be critical of atheism in a way that he thought was unfair and unjust, uh, I would defend his right not to cater it because that involves special preparation, a presence there, and it has nothing to do with whether other people will believe that he supports it. It's just the idea that you have to use your your talents and your skills to support something with which you disagree. So I think that those distinctions are important. So that, and you would say that's that's fundamentally different yes. than the decision to serve them coffee. Yeah. Uh, or Jack Phillips' decision, which he made available, yeah, he to said, give, give them any other cake in the shop. Yeah, he said was off already the shelf, made. there's no problem. Yeah. It's like my wife's a stained glass artist, and imagine... You know, somebody walks in uh, or calls her up and says, I want you to make a stained glass of the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus. And and she asks, well, what are you going to use it for? And the person says, oh, I have a, I'm the pastor of the first church of Satan and I want to put it up in my, uh, above the altar and I'm going to put a little message underneath it. She will never be here, referring to the Virgin Mary. Well, clearly my wife would say, well, no, I'm not going to use my skills to honor that. And to me, that just simply makes sense. I, I think, uh, you know, regardless of where one may stand on any of these questions, uh, and I feel that way, uh, you know, across religious lines, I, I would not at all be offended if, if let's say, uh, a Baptist friend of mine doesn't want to photograph infant baptism at my church because they just don't believe in it and they think that they're cooperating. I may not think philosophically they have a great argument, but that's not my business as a, as a non-Baptist to judge them. Right. So there's a diff you would say there's a difference between judging the validity of their convictions That's right. and forcing them to do something that would would violate them. You know, it's, there's a long tradition within, within Christianity that, that you don't coerce people's conscience. I mean, even Aquinas uh, says, and of course he wasn't a, you know, raving Enlightenment liberal. He says that, uh, that 
if, let's say, you have an opportunity to baptize the infant child of a Jewish couple, that would, that you should not do that because it, that those parents stand in proxy of that child and you would violate their conscience. And in fact, he says that if your conscience tells you not to do something, even if your conscience is wrong, you should follow it because that's just sort of the deepest part of ourselves. And it sounds kind of counterintuitive on one level, but you, I mean, we can think of cases where, you know, let's suppose that you know somebody, supposing you think that it's okay to drink alcohol, uh, and you know of, a, let's say, a, a religious person, a Christian in particular, who thinks it's a violation of conscience to imbibe alcohol, you don't put that person in a position where they feel as if they have to sort of serve you a drink or, or in some way feel as if they're cooperating with it, even if you think they're wrong. It's a way to sort of honor their conscience, even if you disagree. Yeah, I mean, the Bible's very clear about how, you know, how to deal That's with people right. who's, who have different, you know, different areas of conscience, and, yeah. that, and that causing someone to stumble actually means causing someone to violate their conscience. What might, whether you know, right. whether whether their conscience needs to be educated or not. That's right. I mean, I was count, what, that's the counterintuitive part. Because if I were in Paul's place, I would have said, "Well, just re-educate their conscience." <laughs> yeah. But that's not what he says. Yeah. He says, "Don't put them in a place where they that's right. Be, where they be tempted to violate their conscience." Yeah, it was about five years ago or three years ago. My wife and I were in Rome, and we took a tour of the great synagogue of Rome. And all males that enter have to wear a yarmulke. And I wore a yarmulke. I'm not Jewish, but I would have thought it just uh, offensive if I had said, no, I'm not going to wear a yarmulke. I'm not Jewish. I'd say, now, there could be some uh, religious believers, Christians included, who for some reason does, don't want to wear it, but then you just simply don't take the tour, right? I mean, you have to respect right. people's uh, beliefs. Yeah, and there's all, there's all, there always needs to be a walk-away provision. That's right. For that. And that's, I think, what, what was so troubling about the Jack Phillips case, the Baronel Stutzman case, the, flo- yeah. the florist, uh, there was no walk-away provision. That's right. Uh, because they, they, were, they were being coerced by the power of the state yeah. to violate their most deeply held religious views. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think, you, you rightly pick up, is very problematic. Yeah. And this is where, c- culturally, it seems to me, since the Obergefell decision in 2015, that we, we've seen, I think, the, the LGBT community uh, engage more of the coercive power of government to to establish their agenda, and some, some have suggested that even that amounts to a form of payback yeah. for, a, for for in, in, as a result of treatment that they received at the hands yeah. of Christian communities in the past, yeah. for which I think we ought to repent. Yeah, uh, but that yeah. invoking the power of the state to force someone to violate their religious beliefs. Yeah. is, I think, taking on new meaning in the aftermath of the Obergefell decision. You know, we've always had in America this kind of Puritan streak, right? So we have this, these, I, I, I don't know, this is sort of Beckwith's pet theory about American political and religious history. We've always had, we've always been kind of libertarian and Puritan at the same time, right? So, so during the 60s and 70s, we often hear, heard uh, through the 80s that the government should not force its morality on, or people should not force their morality on other people through the government, which is, which is kind of the libertarian resistance. But we've also had sort of this Puritan streak, right, that the role of the government is to make men moral. Right, and so in a way, the culture wars have kind of shifted sides. Right, so you hear exactly. this kind of pure, you know this exactly kind of puritanism right. on the part of those that 
20 years ago were making the kind of libertarian argument. So, uh, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I think that there's, you know, I think it's, it's, it's always difficult to sort of balance these things because we want to say on the one hand, supposing you take a very strong view, uh, supposing you're very liberal on, on issues like human sexuality and you think that uh, to not, uh, to not uh, for Jack Phillips to do what he, he did or, or to refuse to do what he, he, he didn't want to do is a indignity to the gay couple. But, you know, if we extend that to religious liberty, you know, forget about setting aside the sexual orientation question, we don't think it's, it's, it's an indignity to the Christian who wants to hire the, ba- the, the Jewish uh, photographer to, to photograph the baptism. We don't think it's, it's an indignity against the Christian for him to refuse, right? We have to, I think, learn to live with the fact that in a free society, people are going to come to different conclusions and it's going to be awkward and sometimes painful, but I think that allows us to be more virtuous as a consequence. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, there, there's I think, critique on a lot of different fronts yeah. for, you know, both for folks who have tried to impose the power of government for a a particular agenda that's more consistent with uh, Christian views and folks who are doing the opposite, to be very careful about how we invoke the power of the state, principally to do things that we may or may not be able to persuade people in the broader culture to do. Would you share that sort of skepticism about, or or what guidelines would you give about when it's appropriate to invoke the power of the state? It's really difficult. It's a difficult question. I think it depends on sort of the cultural situation where you find yourself. So uh, there's a famous quote from the City of God where Augustine uh, says that we sh- that Christians shouldn't try to uh, prohibit prostitution in the Roman Empire because uh, people will either come to resent us or... Um, or you'll actually not get virtue as a consequence. Now, I'm not suggesting by quoting Augustine that therefore uh, there's a right to prostitution. But if you're, on the other hand, though, supposing you're living in a culture where people generally are virtuous uh, uh, because they're inculcated uh, in, in certain ways, and somebody says, let's make prostitution legal because uh, people have a fundamental right to do whatever they want with their bodies, there you may want to say no because we, we realize that if we were to permit it, it may create greater temptations for people to commit adultery, and adulteries are di- adultery is destabilizing the families, and you sort of can give those kind of arguments. And, but it, it, in those two scenarios, you have to... You, both of them, you have an awareness of, of both natural and divine law, and you have to sort of codify the human law in order to try to make it easier for people to be as virtuous as possible given the historical situation they're in. So I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I would never dream of starting a movement to make gambling illegal, even though I think casino gambling has problems. It's, it's not, I don't think it's intrinsically immoral, but I do, do think that it is a catalyst for, you know... And there's uh, lots of bad outcomes. That's a lot, lot, lot bad, bad outcomes, right? And it's, and it's been established. Like, so I would never think that it would even be possible to, to change that. Now, I live now in Waco, Texas, where about a dozen years ago, they what wanted to have... <laughs> they, they, they wanted to uh, open up uh, casinos uh, near, I think, off of Lake Waco... And I wrote an op-ed piece saying it's a really bad idea. I grew up in Las Vegas. There are certain 
consequences to this, uh, even though great promises are made about increasing revenues and so forth, you're actually going to uh, make it easier for people who are tempted to to do so, and that hurts families and so forth. And it, it never passed. So there's a case where, you know, you sort of have to, you know, balance where you're at and and how much good you can do given mm-hmm. your circumstances. Right. Let's take uh, one more uh, sort of case at the retail level. Yeah. Um, the Hobby Lobby mm-hmm. case um, where the Greens opted not to provide just a handful of contraceptive devices that were abortifacient. Yes. Uh, which means, for our listeners, which means that they, in, they actually induce abortions or, or prevent a, a fertilized uh, embryo from implanting in the womb. That's right. Um, and courts ruled in their favor all along. Yeah. Uh, and they invoked, specifically invoked their religious freedom in the operation of their business. That's right. Uh, and do you, do you agree with the court's decision on that and their reasoning on this? I, I do. The, 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 The Greens made an argument based on something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is a federal law that was passed in the mid-1990s in response to another Supreme Court case, and we don't have time to to go over that. But essentially what RIFRA said to all the governments in the United States, state, federal, and local, that any law that substantially burdened religious free exercise or practice, even if the law was written not to do that, in other words, it's an unintended Mm -hmm. consequence, that the burden is on the state to prove that it has to have that law in order to achieve its, what is called, compelling interest, which means it needs a really, really, really good reason. And the Supreme Court uh, had actually overturned RIFRA for state laws, but it still applied to federal laws. And in this case, the court essentially said, well, we're not going to deal with the question of whether uh, the part of the Affordable Care Act regulation fulfilled a compelling state interest. But we will address the second part of RIF, which says, can the state get these contraceptive devices to the employees in another way without burdening the Greens? And and the court said, yes. Uh, They can easily give people vouchers. In fact, there were groups and companies that had been grandfathered in in which that was done. And so basically, uh, the court uh, ruled in favor of them based, based based on that. One more question. Um, where do you see the most significant challenges to religious freedom coming in the next few years? I, I see it in, in two places. One place is the vendor issues, that is, the, 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 the Jack Phillips-type cases, right? You where, think we'll see more of it? I think we'll see more of it. Those professions that involve um, kind, of, uh, uh, kind of single contracts, right? So, so the difference between like walking to a supermarket and buying a loaf of bread versus hiring a baker to design a cake, right? Those are, uh, we have analogous uh, professions outside of that. Like, so you have to hire a lawyer, right? A lawyer can decline, right, based on a variety of reasons, right? Physicians can still generally do that. I think that's one area. The other area uh, is, is more theoretical. I think in the, in, the, in the literature right now, there are two kinds of challenges to religious liberty. One challenge says religious liberty isn't special, and the other is that religious liberty is not only not special, religion is irrational. And the yeah. And, and, and harmful. And harmful. And those, I think, there were, I'd like to see more Christian philosophers and theologians who don't ordinarily write for law reviews getting involved there. 
And I've tried to do some work in that area with my book, Taking Right Seriously. And I'm planning on, I've just put in for a one semester research leave uh, at Baylor to do a, a book on is religious liberty special to sort of address the, the other part of that equation. And I think that, that's really the action is going to be. Well, I'm sorry you could come re reflect on these things for Religious Freedom Week at, oh, at I wish Biola I, this year. I wish I could have um, done it. And we'll certainly invite you again in the future oh, for that. This has been, Frank, this has been really helpful, I think, to put, to put in perspective sort of where, where we are in the discussion of religious freedom, how it's viewed by the courts and the legal system and, and the public policy apparatus. Um, so I really appreciate the nuancing and the careful thought that you've given to this. This is really helpful, I think, for our listeners. Thank you, Scott. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Frank Beckwith, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed our conversation today with Dr. Beckwith, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything. <music>